0: All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. Strange though it may seem, we thought it was Saturday for like half-day. It is, though, March 19th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We've got a jam-packed show tonight. In fact, so packed, as I tweeted out earlier today, we actually had to shave stuff out tonight, Colin. So like half of our Sunday show, God willing, is already prepared and ready to go. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about balances of power tonight. A lot of you have been asking questions that either directly or indirectly... Or along those lines anyway. We're going to do the SEC East and SEC West in reverse order tonight. I'm also going to touch on just the machine-like nature of Ohio State football. Every facet of the organization there for Ryan Day and company, are, it's operating at a level totally detached from the rest of the Big Ten, but I don't even view them as competing against the Big Ten right now. More on that in a little while. A quick reminder, if you haven't already and you're watching, so you're obviously on the channel, subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications, and... Those of you who continue to ask, I will continue to tell you, yes, the Late Kick podcast is live. Search for it wherever you download your podcast. All that I humbly ask is if you do that, give us one of those five-star reviews and a brief comment because that really, really, really helps us out. So let's get into this. The battle at the top of the SEC West, a lot of you may term it balance of power in the SEC West. The balance of power in the SEC West shakes out like this for me right now. Even though we just had a team from this division win a national championship, I still view Alabama, if I'm power rating this in any given year, which I guess we're doing because we're doing the segment, I put Alabama still at the top. Reasons I'll mention in a second. LSU right there at number two, a gap. And then Auburn at number three, Texas A&M at number four. Fascinating though, is the dynamic here. I want you to think about this for a second and I want you to forget about division for just a moment and then we'll dive back into it. Just think about the salaries that I'm about to mention. Think about these guys being independent. They're all Notre Dames for a second. Nick Saban is the head coach at Alabama. He makes 9 million or thereabouts a year. Jimbo Fisher is at seven and a half a year. That stuff's guaranteed, by the way. That entire contract is guaranteed. Gus Million is at seven, or Gus Malzahn rather, it's not a bad nickname. Is it seven million a year? And Ed Orgeron is it seven million a year? He just got himself quite the hefty raise. All of those salaries are good, by the way, guys. For top ten nationally, four coaches in one division of one conference are in the top ten nationally. I think they may be like the top eight in terms of overall salary. So why do I say think of them independently? Well, the reason is this if any of these guys were an independent and they just put together their own schedule and let's say it rated, you know, 25th, 30th in the country in terms of strength of schedule so good enough to avoid serious criticism all these guys be winning 10 games a year i have no doubt about that they're all good enough i think they're all capable i think they're all probably worth what they're being paid and even if i don't believe it their employers believe it and that's what value really is it's a combination of What do you think i'm worth and how replaceable or irreplaceable am i right now so for instance in college station texas they looked at their program and they said top to bottom we check all the boxes the only thing that we don't have right now is the right guy in the driver's seat we think jimbo fisher is that guy it's no mystery he's won a national championship before so let's give him 75 million dollars guaranteed and that's what they did i don't have a problem with that i'm not here to tell anyone they're overpaid in fact you could make the opposite case, but we're not going to go down that road tonight. So the bottom line is, if all these guys, if one of these guys was in the Big 12 and one of these guys was in the Big 10 and ACC, there would be enough wins to probably go around. But you and I both know that's not reality. Here's reality. There aren't enough wins to go around in the SEC West. Saban and Alabama are going to be good as long as he's there. I believe that Ed Orgeron and LSU did not accomplish merely a flash-in-the-pan performance last year. I think there's a lot of staying power about the program's DNA and their culture right now. I'll get back to LSU in just a second. And then you look at Gus Malzon at Auburn, and you look at Jimbo Fisher and College Station at Texas A&M, and you ask yourself all these guys, our reason I mentioned their salaries is they're all getting paid 10 plus win per year salaries. Because with those high numbers, obviously and understandably come high expectations. There aren't enough wins to go around. So where does the balance of power shake out here? Well, I told you that one year does not a dynasty undo. So LSU just took down Alabama this last year. This is a lot more macro in nature. So I'd still put Alabama as the top program in the SEC West. I wouldn't argue with you too much if you wanted to throw LSU at me. Obviously, I have LSU as a clear number two right now. You beat Alabama again this year, go to Atlanta again this year. Hey, two years in a row, a little more of a trend. And I'm not calling you a flash in the pan to begin with, but I know some people out there would. I think LSU is going to prove a lot of people wrong this year. But I think regardless of, or irregardless, because I love using that word so much, of how you view the top two. The gap, and then subsequently the three and four spots. It's where it's really, really fun to talk about this year in the likelihood that we get a season at some point. I want to tell you specifically where I was this time last year, mentally at least. Where I was this time last year is I thought the LSU and Auburn game and overall rivalry was the most important within the context of this conversation, the balance of power, SEC West conversation. It's cause I didn't think Saban was going anywhere. I didn't think Bama was going anywhere as long as he's there. And I had supreme confidence in Jimbo Fisher. A year later, I still have confidence in Jimbo Fisher. I think it's a do-or-die, not do-or-die in terms of his job security, but it's a show-me kind of year for him this upcoming year. Got his quarterback returning, got his top pass catcher returning, got four offensive linemen returning. It's a very complex offensive system they run, so I'm not so sure they may not need to tweak a little bit to maybe more properly utilize the strengths of their quarterback, but I digress. That's another show and another topic altogether. But this time last year, I viewed it as Orgeron, Malzon. Like, who's going to take that third spot at the table, ultimately allowing the division to cannibalize whoever number four is? And yet we look here a year later, and I think that Auburn's still in that equation. I just think it's an Auburn-Texas A&M question right now, an Auburn-Texas A&M dilemma. And the reason why, to me, it's so clear to put Auburn ahead of Texas A&M when you're talking balance of power is, well, Auburn, first off, Fisher's yet to beat Auburn in his two years at Texas A&M, including at home last year in a game I thought that was a must win for them. Secondly, think about what Auburn was able to do last year. They played Georgia close, and okay, A&M played Georgia close, but they then, they being Auburn, beat Alabama. Alabama went into College Station and pretty much smoked Texas A&M. Auburn also was very competitive at LSU, and LSU crucified Texas A&M on national TV in front of parents of players and everything. So... Texas A&M, for those reasons, forget about Bama at the top LSU too. I got Auburn at number three right now, balance of power in the West. Texas a and is the most intriguing team in the country to me, bar none. Any division, any conference, it's Texas A&M. The reason is because of the expectation combined with the climate that they're in, combined with obviously because of that climate, the challenges they have, they have a more workable schedule this year. And that's the good news. I look at their schedule right now, If I'm an odds maker, I'm probably favoring them in nine of their 12 regular season games. You tell me right now, is nine and three good enough for you this year, Aggie fans? Does that quench your thirst? I don't know. I think the answer probably and the camp would be very split there they are not going to, in all likelihood, face a ranked opponent until week seven. That's when they go to Auburn. This is not a front-loaded schedule at all. Now, they have the luxury of returning some experience at quarterback. So unlike some of their peers in the SEC, they're not looking to install a new offense with a new coordinator and a new quarterback. So they do have a lot returning in a year where, more so than any other year, returning starters and experience is probably going to be at a premium here. The quarterback position's always like that. Question Aggie fans have is, okay, well, what are we returning at quarterback? Kellen Monye came on late in the year, but I mean, we, we haven't been winning big games here. Is it that we're not talented enough at quarterback? Is it maybe that The system that we run here is probably a little too complex, given the fact that we can recruit stud athletes. I mean, we can out-athlete some people. Maybe we don't need to do it the way that we've done it. Those are not really questions for a fan base or myself. Those are questions for Jimbo Fisher to answer. Talking to some people last week, the best read that a lot of folks get around the Texas A&M program is, you look at Kellen Mond, I mean, it's no mystery. His legs are a vital part of his game. Probably need to use them a little bit more. But Texas A&M and the SEC West, because of all these reasons, it's the team, when we eventually get to a college football season, I am most excited to watch this year. Because that's a really good team, it's a really good roster, it's a really good coach, and they could go eight and four. Because that's how deep the division they're in is right now. What about the SEC East? Because uh, depth in the East, A lot of adjectives used as of late to describe the East. Deep, not one of them. The picture and the stack that you look at in the East right now, there's no mystery who's at the top. The balance of power is Georgia. It's everyone else. It's been that way for a few years now. I have not viewed Georgia within the context of the SEC East for a couple of years. The reason is because every... Every facet of their program is operating at a higher level. They are recruiting at a higher level than whoever number 2 is. They have investment financially to a degree way higher than whoever number 2 is. Their coaching staff is the best in the SEC or has been in the SEC East over the last several years. Everything they're doing it's been done at a higher level. They've been developing well. Everything they've done has been done at a higher level. So I viewed them within the context of, can they win the SEC? That's how I enter every year thinking about Georgia. Can they win the SEC? And who are they going to face in Atlanta if and when they get there? It's been pretty safe to pencil them in there for a few years now. But every aspect of that program is operating at a higher level. That's not a mystery. The big question, of course, million, billion, trillion dollar question on everyone's mind in the East is, is there anyone here currently? You can talk program or head coach of program. I'll do both. Is there anyone here currently capable of unseating them, of dethroning the champ, if you really want to write it or say it in headline form? What do we have? Well, we got Florida and Tennessee. I think those are obviously the two most likely candidates with South Carolina maybe being a 2B or 2C. I don't know how you'd want to align them. I would put a spotlight on Florida and Tennessee right this second before I would Carolina. Where is Florida though? Who are they? You know, I was making the independent argument about the SEC West. The funny thing about Florida is if Dan Mullen's team, if his program, if they weren't independent, think about what they did last year and think about them not in the context just for a second of the SEC East. If you got a team that's now racked up back-to-back double-digit win seasons, they just won 11-2, and they won a New Year's six game, they won the Orange Bowl, they finished number six in the country come season M. That's a great year, that's wonderful. And yet there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's, there's encouragement and there's optimism, but ultimately you're left feeling unsatisfied because you're not an independent. You happen to be parked in the same division as one of the best in the sport. That's Kirby Smart in Georgia. So 11 and two last year, that was Florida. New Year's six win, that was Florida. Top six finish, that was Florida. And yet in every metric, they're left looking up at their biggest rival and that's the University of Georgia. So who are they? Well, they're a really good program. That's who Florida is right now. They're a really good program. They got a really good to a great head coach. Their staff talked about this with Steve Wolfong some the other day on another broadcast. The recruiting aspect of that staff is what continues to elevate inch by inch by inch. And I was talking to someone else down there who didn't necessarily wanna be named, but one of the things that the people inside the Florida program are excited about is the behind the scenes aspect, the support staff, the infrastructure, the analysts, all the folks that you need to run a true recruiting machine that maybe they didn't feel like they had, certainly to the degree that a Georgia or an Alabama or a Clemson has it a couple of years ago, they feel like they're still not where they want to be to call themselves great. They're a lot further along, maybe, than they were a couple of years ago. That's the feeling right now in Gainesville. But Florida, who are they? They're really, really good in a division where you have to be great to be the best. Who's Tennessee? Tennessee, there's a little bit of a gap below, obviously. Florida, you saw it on the field last year. You don't have to have watched that game to understand... Uh, There was a lot more mountain to climb for the rebuild project that Jeremy Pruitt inherited. But to me, along with Texas A&M, if you look over to the east, Tennessee is the SEC Eastern Division version of Texas A&M. They are my team that I'll be watching the most. I would love to have seen a lot of Harrison Bailey, for example, the incoming quarterback, the guy who probably the day he steps on campus is the most talented, just raw talent, the most talented option that they have at quarterback. You know how spring went. We didn't get to see things. What's it going to take though to unseat Georgia? I'll answer the question for any of these teams. What it takes to unseat them, you can do one of two ways. You can either out recruit them I don't think there's a staff in the SEC East capable of out-recruiting Georgia right now. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying with current staff makeups that I see in Gainesville and Tennessee, I don't think that either of those programs are finishing higher than Georgia. Reserve the right to change my mind. They reserve the right to change their staffs. So we'll see about that. But if you're not going to go the route of just out-recruiting them, therefore out-athleting them, you got to have a great quarterback. you got to have a precision passing attack and great quarterback play. You can take Kirby Smart's career all the way back to when he was at Alabama. They would occasionally get beat. And there was this misconception for a while that he was getting beaten because all well, these hurry up, up-tempo, no huddle offenses, they're tying him in pretzels, that that was never the case. The games where Alabama lost, the games where Georgia loses, go back and watch them, guys. its it, It's not a quarterback running for 250 yards. It's a quarterback threading the needle into really, really good coverage, whether it be Bo Wallace a couple of years ago, Ole Miss turned the trick a couple of times on him, but whatever the case may be, if you're not going to out-recruit him, you better have really good quarterback play, and you better have a red-hot Saturday afternoon against him. So let's ask the question, is Jared Garantano that guy at Tennessee? My brutally honest answer is, I don't think he is. Is Brian Maurer that guy? No, I don't think he is. It's why you have bright red Sharpie circled around the name Harrison Bailey. I don't know anything about what Harrison Bailey is gonna be like as a a college quarterback. What I do know from people I trust is, again, like I said, the moment he steps on campus, that guy, you're watching B-roll of him right now, that guy is the most talented option that they have. Doesn't mean he's the best quarterback that they have, most talented option. So is Tennessee in a situation where they can capitalize on all that this year? I don't know that, but shift the road down the ways a bit to Florida, and you get a lot closer to having some folks say yes to the question, do you have the quarterback play to beat Georgia? Because Kyle Trask is, what is he, a redshirt senior now? He's like 27 years old, Colin. So he's got some experience, and they've got some talent around him, and you've got a head coaching staff down here a few years in now to building a roster. So I think the answer from Florida folks is a hesitant Yeah, we kind of think we're there. I don't know that they're ready to bet their lives on it or life savings at least, but I think they feel like maybe they're a lot closer. So you either got to out-recruit them or you got to outplay them at the quarterback position. And the answer to either one of those in the terms of can someone in the SEC Eastern Division do it is right now, to me, it's a maybe at best. I can tell you this though, if you thrive on disrespect, then it's going to be a good year for Florida or Tennessee because I don't get the sense that very many people outside of Gainesville or maybe outside of Knoxville. I don't get the sense that many people believe there's anyone in the East capable of knocking Georgia off. And I'm not going to try and make my living of picking the year when it happens. My default stance is until further notice, Georgia is the favorite. Georgia runs this division. And then once someone proves me wrong and proves that adage wrong, that's great. And I'll be the first to rush to the front of the line and embrace them. Until then, still Georgia's division and everyone else. Speaking of just thoroughly owning a division, a conference, has anyone, I don't, you guys have probably been busy. There has been a fair amount going on. Have you noticed what Ohio State's been doing? Most recently, they've been lapping the field in recruiting. They've got like Ohio State and then you got a lot of room. And then you got the number two, three, four teams right now. Granted, it's March and we're in the middle of a national crisis. So I don't think a lot of people have college football recruiting on the forefront of their mind, but that's just one aspect of this program. Their recruiting is a total machine right now. Their infrastructure, everything about the Ohio State football program is operating with machine-like precision. There's no distraction up there. Their coaching staff is A+. plus. Their roster is A+. plus. Quarterback right now is A+. plus. Uh, Their investment is A+, their resources are A+. Where is the red X? Like, what box do they not check? Here's the problem. The problem is no one in the Big Ten's close to them right now. You can watch on the field, but even if you just paid attention to everything but football games, and you saw what Ohio State's doing, and the level with which in every aspect of their program, they're peaking the meter at 10+. plus. It wouldn't take a rocket scientist to realize, man, they're probably winning football games Saturdays in the fall, aren't they? Here is what I've noticed. What I've noticed with Clemson is they had to do this in the ACC. They rose to such a degree that no one in the ACC challenged them. Now, the rest of the Big Ten is a lot closer to Ohio State than the rest of the ACC is to Clemson, but there's still a sizable gap between either one of them and their respective conferences. Follow me for a second here. A lot of folks, I think, have a misconception about Clemson. They look at Clemson and they look at the pillow fight that is the rest of the Atlantic Coast Conference and they think to themselves, oh, Clemson's got it made. That's really, really easy to go through that. Now, it is easy to beat the teams they have to beat in conference, just like it is easy for Ohio State to paste Purdue or, or Northwestern or whoever they need to. The difference is, It doesn't matter on a given Saturday if Ohio State beats Indiana by 23 points or 43 points. Doesn't matter. A win's a win. It's a comfortable three plus score win. Just like with Clemson, it doesn't matter if they beat Wake Forest by 20 or 40. It doesn't matter if they show up with their C plus game. Sad reality right now, Clemson's C plus game is, in most cases, good enough to go undefeated. Ohio State got to be a little better than C plus, but Ohio State can show up far from perfect. And just by the nature of how superior their roster is to the rest of the Big Ten, including some of the big boys in the Big Ten, they can still win the vast majority to all of their regular season games. Here's what I respect about what Clemson has done. And here's what I think that Ryan Day and Ohio State are well on their way to doing. Clemson realized we can't hold ourselves to an ACC standard. It doesn't matter if we are 10 rungs above everyone else on the ladder. You notice with Clemson, they annihil- in, the, in the good years, they still find ways to annihilate everyone. They don't have that sleepy Saturday. Again, in the good years, they don't have that sleepy Saturday. And the reason that they're doing that is because they're not holding themselves to a Wake Forest standard, in all due respect, to a Virginia standard. And Virginia played for the conference championship last year what they're doing is they're getting ready for January. And so I wonder, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I almost wonder if we're shifting into a territory right now with Ohio State where, whereas previously you would have said, all right, well, they they got Penn State coming up this year. And then of course you got the big win against Michigan at the end of the year. Guys, I don't even know that I'm thinking that way right now with Ohio State. What I'm thinking is, how do they match up with Alabama? How do they match up with LSU, Georgia? How do they match up with Clemson? You know, what does Ohio State versus Oklahoma look like? That's the context they're in right now. I don't even think about them as being in the Big Ten because they have become so superior in that conference that it is college football playoff as a starting point for me with them. Obviously they can't afford to think like that, but that's what's so impressive. That's not what they're thinking like. Let me tell you what a lot of people would do in Ryan Day's position or in Ohio State's position. A lot of folks in a lot of programs would look around at the distance between them and number two in their conference, And subconsciously, they would check into cruise control mode. And that's not what they're doing. In fact, if anything, they've put the foot even harder down on the pedal. And that's what I respect about it. Because they're painting the walls with everyone's blood in their conference. But that's not what they're going to do to win a national championship. What they're going to have to do to win a national championship is show up in Glendale, Arizona, pop Clemson early, but then hold on and get the win instead of having Clemson come back on them. And it doesn't matter if you're up by 33 or 53 against Purdue in the middle of November. It matters that you maintain the standard, even against inferior teams, that you're going to need to play at come January. It's all about January right now with Ohio State. They have totally transcended the Big Ten Conference. And given the prestige, and given the magnitude of some of the programs up there, and given the amount of investment into those programs up there and the big names of those coaches. I'm not sure that's something a lot of folks thought they'd be saying, especially if we go back. And I love to laugh at this because fortunately, I was at least not in this camp. The day Urban Meyer retired, I'll never forget scrolling. I picked up the iJosh and I scrolled through Twitter and all of these folks. A lot of you know who you are. A lot of folks thought it was the beginning of the end, or at least the beginning of Ohio State sort of descending back to the pack among those of us who were merely normal. And then you heard they didn't have this national coaching search; they just promoted Ryan Day, and you thought to yourself, "Huh. Well, okay then. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Is is it Michigan going to be the favorite here? Is it who's going to be the favorite in the Big Ten? Oh, never mind." they're actually going to improve their program. What I saw, and I didn't just observe this. I had a couple of people who I really, really have opinions that I value. They text me when I was asking them, what do you think about this Ryan Day? What do you think about this hire or this kind of promotion to head coach? They said, all you need to know is they got their first choice. And the people who said that to me, combined with common sense, led me to believe this dude's about to torch the barn and kill the rats in the Big Ten. And that's exactly what he's done. Ohio State could have had a whole lot of folks. That's the whole point. They knew they had the right guy inside the own four walls of their athletic complex up there. And so they got the guy they wanted to replace Urban Meyer. Now, a couple of years later, everyone looks around and says, Ryan Day is a monster. Where did he come from? Well, he was right there the whole time. And they knew they had him right there the whole time. That's why there wasn't a whole lot of gnashing of teeth in Columbus nearly as much as you would have expected there to be externally when Urban Meyer stepped down. So Ohio State hats off, man. They are rolling right now. A reminder, again, as you can tell, we're live tonight. We are still isolated here. It is essential personnel only, which translates to Colin and I have just been walking around the uh, business park all alone, all afternoon. Not even the vending machine people are here, or the, the vendors are here, so that's we're starving. But we are going to be here Sunday night. That's the plan, unless uh, our overlords at CBS Sports hand down an ultimatum that says we can't come in here anymore. So, reminder, we'll be here Sunday night, 7 central, 8 eastern time. If you haven't already, subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications. Also, give us a thumbs up on the uh, YouTube video that you're watching right now because it really helps us. And the Late Kick podcast is available. You can find it wherever you download podcasts, The Late Kick with Josh Pate, five-star reviews and comments, always appreciated there as well. Have a great weekend. Have a safe and clean weekend. I'm Josh Pate. For Colin, for Aaron, for everyone else here, this is The Late Kick. We'll see you Sunday night.